Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life by William Law. Chapter Thirteen, Part Two. Chapter Thirteen that not only a life of vanity or sensuality, but even the most regular kind of life, that is not governed by great devotion, sufficiently shows its miseries, its wants and emptiness, to the eyes of the world. This represented in various characters. Look now at that condition of life which draws the envy of all eyes. Negotius is a temperate, honest man, he served his time under a master of great trade, but has by his own management made it a more considerable business than it ever was before. For thirty years past he has written fifty or sixty letters in a week, and is busy in corresponding with all parts of Europe. The general good of trade seems to Negotius to be the general good of life. Whomsoever he admires, whatever he commends or condemns, either in church or state, is admired, commended, or condemned, with some regard to trade. As money is continually pouring in upon him, so he often lets it go in various kinds of expense and generosity, and sometimes in ways of charity. Negotius is always ready to join in any public contribution. If a purse is making at any place where he happens to be, whether it be to buy a plate for horse-race or to redeem a prisoner out of Gaul, you are always sure of having something from him. He has given a fine ring of bells to a church in the country, and there is much expectation that he will some time or other make a more beautiful front to the market-house than has yet been seen in any place, for it is the generous spirit of Negotius to do nothing in a mean way. If you ask what it is that has secured Negotius from all scandalous vices, it is the same thing that has kept him from all strictness of devotion. It is his great business." He has always had too many important things in his head, his thoughts have been too much employed, to suffer him to fall either into any courses of rakery, or to feel the necessity of an inward, solid piety. For this reason he hears of the pleasures of debauchery, and the pleasures of piety, with the same indifference, and has no more desire of living in the one than in the other, because neither of them consists with that turn of mind, and multiplicity of business, which are his happiness. If Negotius was asked what it is which he drives at in life, he would be as much at a loss for an answer as if he was asked what any other person is thinking of. For though he always seems to himself to know what he is doing, and has many things in his head, which are the motives of his actions, yet he cannot tell you of any one general end in life that he has chosen with deliberation, as being truly worthy of all his labor and pains." He has several confused notions in his head, which have been a long time there, such as these, viz., that it is something great to have more business than other people, to have more dealings upon his hands than a hundred of the same profession, to grow continually richer and richer, and to raise an immense fortune before he dies. The thing that seems to give Negotius the greatest life and spirit, and to be most in his thoughts, is an expectation that he has, 
that he shall die richer than any of his business ever did. The generality of people, when they think of happiness, think of Negotius, in whose life every instance of happiness is supposed to meet, sober, prudent, rich, prosperous, generous, and charitable. Let us now, therefore, look at this condition in another but truer light. Let it be supposed that the same Negotius was a painful, laborious man, every day deep in variety of affairs, that he neither drank nor debauched, but was sober and regular in his business. Let it be supposed that he grew old in this course of trading, and that the end and design of all this labor, and care, and application to business, was only this, that he might die possessed of more than a hundred thousand pairs of boots and spurs, and as many greatcoats. Let it be supposed that the sober part of the world say of him, when he is dead, that he was a great and happy man, a thorough master of business, and had acquired a hundred thousand pairs of boots and spurs when he died. Now, if this was really the case, I believe it would be readily granted that a life of such business was as poor and ridiculous as any that can be invented. But it would puzzle any one to show that a man that had spent all his time and thoughts in business and hurry that he might die, as it is said, worth a hundred thousand pounds, is any whit wiser than he who has taken the same pains to have as many pairs of boots and spurs when he leaves the world. For if the temper and state of our souls be our whole state, if the only end of life be to die as free from sin and as exalted in virtue as we can, if naked as we came, so naked are we to return, and to stand a trial before Christ and his holy angels for everlasting happiness or misery, what can it possibly signify what a man had or had not in this world? What can it signify what you call those things which a rich man has left behind him, whether you call them his or any one's else, whether you call them trees or fields or birds and feathers, whether you call them a hundred thousand pounds or a hundred thousand pairs of boots and spurs? I say, call them, for the things signify no more to him than the names. Now, it is easy to see the folly of a life thus spent, to furnish a man with such a number of boots and spurs, but yet there needs no better faculty of seeing, no finer understanding, to see the folly of a life spent in making a man a possessor of ten towns before he dies. For if, when he has got all his towns, or all his boots, his soul is going to its own place among separate spirits, and his body be laid by in a coffin, till the last trumpet calls him to judgment, where the inquiry will be, how humbly, how devoutly, how purely, how meekly, how piously, how charitably, how heavenly we have spoken, thought, and acted, whilst we were in the body, how can we say that he who has worn out his life in raising a hundred thousand pounds has acted wiser for himself than he who has had the same care to procure a hundred thousand of anything else? But farther, let it now be supposed that Negotius, when he first entered into business, happening to read the gospel with attention, and eyes open, found that he had a much greater business upon his hands than that to which he had served an apprenticeship, that there were things which belonged to man of much more importance than all our eyes can see, so glorious as to deserve all our thoughts, so dangerous as to need all our care, and so certain as never to deceive the faithful laborer 
let it be supposed that from reading this book he had discovered that his soul was more to him than his body that it was better to grow in the virtues of the soul than to have a large body or a full purse that it was better to be fit for heaven than to have variety of fine houses upon the earth that it was better to secure an everlasting happiness than to have plenty of things which he cannot keep better to live in habits of humility piety devotion charity and self-denial than to die unprepared for judgment better to be most like our saviour or some eminent saint than to excel all the tradesmen in the world in business and bulk of fortune let it be supposed that negotius believing these things to be true entirely devoted himself to god at his first setting out in the world resolving to pursue his business no farther than was consistent with great devotion humility and self-denial and for no other ends but to provide himself with a sober subsistence and to do all the good that he could to the souls and bodies of his fellow-creatures let it therefore be supposed that instead of the continual hurry of business he was frequent in his retirements and a strict observer of all the hours of prayer that instead of restless desires after more riches his soul has been full of the love of god and heavenly affection constantly watching against worldly tempers and always aspiring after divine grace that instead of worldly cares and contrivances he was busy in fortifying his soul against all approaches of sin that instead of costly show and expensive generosity of a splendid life he loved and exercised all instances of humility and lowliness that instead of great treats and full tables his house only furnished a sober refreshment to those that wanted it let it be supposed that his contentment kept him free from all kinds of envy that his piety made him thankful to god in all crosses and disappointments that his charity kept him from being rich by a continual distribution to all objects of compassion now had this been the christian spirit of negotius can any one say that he had lost the true joy and happiness of life by thus conforming to the spirit and living up to the hopes of the gospel can it be said that a life made exemplary by such virtues as these which keep heaven always in our sight which both delight and exalt the soul here and prepare it for the presence of god hereafter must be poor and dull if compared to that of heaping up riches which can neither stay with us nor we with them it would be endless to multiply examples of this kind to show you how little is lost and how much is gained by introducing a strict and exact piety into every condition of human life i shall now therefore leave it to your own meditation to carry this way of thinking farther hoping that you are enough directed by what is here said to convince yourself that a true and exalted piety is so far from rendering any life dull and tiresome that it is the only joy and happiness of every condition in the world imagine to yourself some person in a consumption or any other lingering distemper that was incurable if you were to see such a man wholly intent upon doing everything in the spirit of religion making the wisest use of all his time fortune and abilities if he was for carrying every duty of piety to its greatest height and striving to have all the advantage that could be had from the remainder of his life if he avoided all business but such as was necessary if he was adverse to all the follies and vanities of the world had no taste for finery and show but sought for all his comfort in the hopes and expectations of religion you would certainly commend his prudence 
you would say that he had taken the right method to make himself as joyful and happy as any one can be in a state of such infirmity. On the other hand, if you should see the same person, with trembling hands, short breath, thin jaws, and hollow eyes, wholly intent upon business and bargains as long as he could speak, if you should see him pleased with fine clothes when he could scarce stand to be dressed, and laying out his money in horses and dogs, rather than purchase the prayers of the poor for his soul, which was so soon to be separated from his body, you would certainly condemn him as a weak, silly man. Now, as it is easy to see the reasonableness, the wisdom and happiness, of a religious spirit in a consumptive man, so if you pursue the same way of thinking, you will as easily perceive the same wisdom and happiness of a pious temper in every other state of life. For how soon will every man that is in health be in the state of him that is in a consumption? How soon will he want all the same comforts and satisfactions of religion which every dying man wants? And if it be wise and happy to live piously, because we have not yet above a year to live, is it not being more wise and making ourselves more happy, because we may have more years to come? If one year of piety before we die is so desirable, are not more years of piety much more desirable? If a man had fixed five years to live, he could not possibly think at all, without intending to make the best use of them all. When he saw his stay so short in this world, he must needs think that this was not a world for him, and when he saw how near he was to another world that was eternal, he must surely think it very necessary to be very diligent in preparing himself for it. Now, as reasonable as piety appears in such a circumstance of life, it is yet more reasonable in every circumstance of life to every thinking man. For who but a madman can reckon that he has five years certain to come? And if it be reasonable and necessary to deny our worldly tempers, and to live wholly unto God, because we are certain that we are to die at the end of five years, surely it must be much more reasonable and necessary for us to live in the same spirit, because we have no certainty that we shall live five weeks. Again, if we were to add twenty years to the five, which is in all probability more than will be added to the lives of many people, who are at man's estate, what a poor thing it is! How small a difference is there between five and twenty-five years! It is said that a day is with God as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, because, in regard to his eternity, this difference is as nothing. Now, as we are all created to be eternal, to live in an endless succession of ages upon ages, where thousands and millions of thousands of years will have no proportion to our everlasting life in God, so with regard to this eternal state, which is our real state, twenty-five years is as poor a pittance as twenty-five days. Now we can never make any true judgment of time as it relates to us, without considering the true state of our duration. If we are temporary beings, then a little time may justly be called a great deal in relation to us, but if we are eternal beings, then the difference of a few years is as nothing. If we were to suppose three different sorts of rational beings, all of different but fixed durations, one sort that lived a certainty only a month, the other a year, and the third a hundred years. Now if these beings were to meet together and talk about time, they must talk in a very different language. Half an hour to those that were to live but a month 
must be a very different thing to what it is to those who are to live a hundred years. As, therefore, time is thus different a thing with regard to the state of those who enjoy it, so if we would know what time is with regard to ourselves, we must consider our state. Now since our eternal state is as certainly ours as our present state, since we are as certainly to live for ever as we now live at all, it is plain that we cannot judge of the value of any particular time as to us, but by comparing it to that eternal duration for which we are created. If you would know what five years signify to a being that was to live a hundred, you must compare five to a hundred and see what proportion it bears to it, and then you will judge right. So, if you would know what twenty years signify to a son of Adam, you must compare it not to a million of ages, but to an eternal duration, to which no number of millions bears any proportion, and then you will judge right by finding it nothing. Consider therefore this. How would you condemn the folly of a man that should lose his share of future glory for the sake of being rich, or great, or praised, or delighted in any enjoyment, only one poor day before he was to die. But if the time will come, when a number of years will seem less to every one than a day does now, what a condemnation must it then be, if eternal happiness should appear to be lost for something less than the enjoyment of a day? Why does a day seem to trifle us now? It is because we have years to set against it. It is the duration of years that makes it appear as nothing. What a trifle, therefore, must the years of a man's age appear, when they are forced to be set against eternity, when there shall be nothing but eternity to compare them with. Now this will be the case of every man, as soon as he is out of the body. He will be forced to forget the distinctions of days and years, and to measure time, not by the course of the sun, but by setting it against eternity. As the fixed stars, by reason of our being placed at such a distance from them, appear but as so many points, so when we, placed in eternity, shall look back upon all time, it will all appear but as a moment. Then, a luxury, an indulgence, a prosperity, a greatness of fifty years, will seem to every one that looks back upon it as the same poor short enjoyment as if he had been snatched away in his first sin. These few reflections upon time are only to show how poorly they think how miserably they judge, who are less careful of an eternal state, because they may be at some years' distance from it, than they would be if they knew they were within a few weeks of it. End of chapter 13, part 2